If you'll be opening your Bibles to the uh, fourth chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue on with our examination of this book written by Paul, the earliest book he wrote. As we begin chapter 4, or as Paul begins chapter 4, um, there is a change in the tenor of his, uh, of his conversation with the people at Thessalonica. Um, he spent the first three chapters talking about uh, suffering. He spent the first three chapters talking about uh, faithfulness of the church, both within uh, the church there at Thessalonica, chapter 2, and then chapter 1, talking about how the church at Thessalonica was recognized uh, all through Macedonia. And as he begins his discourse in chapter 4, um, the tenor of his, the tenor of his uh, conversation changes. And so you see in the first verse there in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally, brothers... As you received from us how you must walk to please God, even as you are walking, we ask and implore you in the Lord Jesus that you abound even more. So what we see there in this opening verse is finally, brethren, this is akin to, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the Greek in this, finally, brethren, is about the same thing as saying therefore. So based on everything that's gone before these, this chapter, uh, as they were writing it, obviously these are these were not in the original manuscripts. These are not broken up into chapters. We break them up into chapters at where we think there is a where there is a break in in the tense, or there is a break in what the what the author is talking about. But in the original of these, these are not broken up into chapters. These are these are letters, and these letters were written to the congregations, the various congregations, and they they were read. Uh, much as Neil or Hiram would stand in the pulpit and, and read or, uh, or uh, uh, preach a sermon, uh, these were read to the congregations. And so if you look at this through first century eyes, uh, you can see that Paul is now going to talk about or begin a discourse on daily Christian living, things that Christians should be focusing on, things that Christians should be thinking about. And the... the uh, the tendency is to think, well, uh, you know, these are first century Christians. They, you know, they, they deal with things that, that we don't deal with, so, so there's no relevancy here. And as we go through this, you're going to see there's a tremendous amount of relevancy because the problems that they had were still the problems that we have today, uh, both, in the, both in the church and outside in the world as we uh, move outside these doors following services and, and through the majority of our week. So finally, brethren, as you receive from us how, do you, how you must walk to please God, even as you're walking, we ask and implore you in the Lord Jesus that you abound even more. So these practical exhortations that Paul is giving out is for, in this first verse, that you're doing well. You're pleasing God. Uh, but uh, there's more work to be done. This is not, Christianity, Christianity is not a static type of position. You, you get baptized, you're a Christian, okay, everything's done, now I can, just, I can just coast. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. He says, even as you're walking, as you're going through your Christian walk every day, we're asking and imploring you that, in the name of Jesus, that you abound even more. And so all of the things that Hiram talked about in the sermon this morning, very timely uh, sermon with regard, to, uh, with regard to this chapter especially, uh, church growth. Uh, individual growth within the church, individual growth within the body of Christ. 
He says in verse 2, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so this harkens back to what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. And so Paul has brought commandments not of himself. He goes out of his way to say that. He says, he says you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. These things are coming from God. In fact, he says this is God's will, verse 3. Even your dedication that you abstain from fornication. And so one of the first things that he talks about with them is the sin of fornication. The sin of fornication in the first century was very, well, it was very different. It's still fornication is fornication. But in the first century, there was much more, well, you can't even really make that argument. I'm talking about access. Um, the, the heathen in the first century uh, was very apt to commit fornication. Now, this is not adultery. This is not incest. This is something completely different. This is fornication. And so adultery is defined as what? What do we define adultery as? Having, 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 having sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. That's adultery. Incest is defined as sexual relations between a parent and child, however that, whatever that may be. This is fornication. So of those three, how does fornication fit into this? Fornication is sexual relations outside of the marriage. Okay, so someone who's single, another person who's single, they engage in sexual relations. That's fornication. And apparently this was, this was a big deal in the first century. There were temples where you would go and engage in sexual relations as a part of the worship service. Um, there, were these, they were, there were temples to Diana. There were temples to all of these different people. And there were actually people within those temples that served as um, sex workers. I don't know what you, what you would call them. They were, the, they were the people who were, as a part of the service, would engage in these things. And so the heathen in this time, the heathen in the first century, was, was very, it was, this was very common. Now, this is not something that we deal with today, but we deal with these sorts of things in a very different way. How, do we, how, does, this apply to, um, how does this apply to us today? And don't be afraid to talk about sex. I mean, just, you know, sex, it, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, how do, we deal, how do we deal with these kind of things today? We don't have these various temples. What do we have today? It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere you turn. It's everywhere you look. That's exactly correct. Um, you know, porn is, porn is an addiction, and there are people, there are people that you know, and they may, be, they may be ashamed to say so, but they engage in this, they engage in this kind of behavior. Sure. Sure. Yeah, we see the, we see the, yeah, we see the normalization of all of these kind of things. Sex outside of marriage, that's Okay. Just watch this television show. They'll tell you that that's perfectly fine, and it's been going on for a while. You know, uh, homosexuality, uh, all different forms of any kind of, uh, of sexual perversion that Paul talked about in Romans 1. Uh, sure, sure. And we're moving now to we're moving now to a state of cultural of the culture manifesting itself in an aberrant lifestyle being characterized as normal. So, you know, you see a commercial and a woman's kissing a woman or you see a commercial where a man's kissing a man. And what they're trying to do is exactly that. They're trying to normalize that behavior. So you think in your mind, oh, well, you know, they're doing it. Must be all right. Must be okay." And it's just like just like in the heathen world in the first century, 
these kind of things are these kind of things were normalized. They were they were just aspects of normal behavior. And Paul is saying, you know, Paul is saying, you've got to abstain from these things. We realize that these things are all around us. That these are a part of quote unquote everyday life as part of the culture. Um, you know, but in the first century, marriage was really something that wasn't that wasn't uh, it just was trampled under. It wasn't, you know, you could be married and still go to the temple and have sex outside of marriage. And so all of these things he's talking about, but the sexual permissiveness in the first century, it was more like a, it was more like a, uh, this one scholar says it was more like a recreational uh, sport. And Christians, you know, who are, who are brand new Christians, think about a new Christian that comes up out of the waters of baptism, and now they've got to go back out into this world. Once the service is over, they're going back into the end of this world where this stuff is just all around them. They're just inundated with it, where we're inundated with it also. Because you can't, I can't turn on a television show. Uh, I can't turn on a, a computer without something coming up that, you know, is some kind of spam or something that, you know, uh, you know all of these different things. So uh, there is a strong temptation both with them and with us today, if we're not careful, um, to to uh, return to uh, or to abstain and uh, or, uh, in, in, in be, be part of some sort of ungodliness. So Paul says, you know, this, this is really, we know this is a problem, and, you know, this is God's will, even your dedication, that you abstain from fornication, that each one learn how to control his own body in dedication and honor. Do any of your versions say, do you, they use another word? Other than uh, than your than body, a vessel. Okay, vessel is vessel is good. Um, does anyone's version have? I'm sorry. What version I'm reading? I am reading from uh, I'm reading from Hugo McCord's. This is called the Everlasting Gospel. This is his version of the New Testament that's taken directly from the Greek. It's just the Greek directly translated into uh, in, into English. Are there any versions where it says wife? Okay, well, there are some versions out there, and I, if, I, if, you, if you gave me a dollar, I couldn't tell you what they were, but I, I'm one, or, one or more versions have uh, used the word wife uh, instead of, um, instead of uh, 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 vessel or own body, and that the wife, the wife translation is not a good translation. Because what he's talking about here is, is you mind in your own business. You, you mind in taking care of yourself. Take care of your own body. You know, it, it, the woman is considered in other in other scriptures. She's considered the weaker vessel, and so the word vessel there is also. But he's talking about your body as a vessel, your body as a vessel. Um, but the, the the Greek says, learn how to control your own body in dedication and honor, not in passion of lust. So this sort of thing that you that you're subjected to, that you see, uh, you're not to you're not to fall into that trap. Um, Learning how to, <coughs> excuse me, learning how to possess himself or herself as their own as their own vessel. Uh, so you know there's there's some controversy in that interpretation, but none of the interpretations support the word wife. Uh, Paul is urging a man to master his own passions. Okay, the, the stuff that you see on television, the things that you're that that you're witness to, um, you're to control yourself. You're to say, well, that's not that's not something I want to see. And more often than not, I, 
I spend a majority of my time, if I'm trying to find something on television to watch, I'm constantly switching channels because I, I don't want to see that. Or I'm turning the sound off. And, you know, my wife and I are discussing back and forth why, you know, this, they're just trying to, they're trying to normalize this behavior and, you know, we'll have, we'll have none of it. So, controlling your own body in dedication and honor, not in passion of lust, even as the Gentiles, now back to the heathen world, even as the Gentiles who do not know God, not in wrongdoing and taking advantage of a brother in this manner. So, there are, there are those who... Uh, there are those who are complicitous in trying to get these people to dishonor themselves or to dishonor their bodies. And Paul says, uh, you're, not to, uh, you're not to have any of that. So um, there's a connection here that Paul makes between uh, this morality that we seek to have in our lives and true religion. Because these types of things, Paul said at another point, these things should not be so. And so God has not called us into impurity. He's not called us to be, he's not called us to be impure. We're to rise above this. We're to uh, put on holiness, but into holiness. Therefore, he who rejects purity does not reject man. So these people who are trying to get them to commit these sins, is not rejecting man, he's, but rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So all of this Paul is talking about is, is, is talking about this sanctification. And that's a word that he uses throughout, uh, throughout many of his epistles to talk about sanctification and justification. Okay? We're justified through Christ. We're sanctified. Now what does the word sanctification mean? What does the word sanctify? When someone sanctifies something, or san- there's a there's a term sanctification for Christians. What are we talking about? Sorry. Okay, to make holy, and you do that by doing what? When you sanctify someone, you take them, set apart, take them out of the world, and you put them into a place where they're where they're sanctified. So we are to live sanctified lives. We are to be we are sanctified through Jesus to be examples to the world. He talks about that later on when he talks about the fact that there are going to be people that are going to be watching us, watching how we behave. Is that true for us today? Is that true for us today? When you're at work, you know, we asked this question rhetorically last week. When you're at work, do people know you're a Christian? If they do, they're going to be watching you. What are they going to be watching you to do? Yeah, they're going to watch you to see if you're a hypocrite. Well, you know, you say you're a Christian and you do all this, but, you know, I saw you the other day doing such and such. And Well, you know, I didn't know Christians did that. And so there is a world outside these doors that's watching us. They're watching what we do. They're watching how we talk. They're watching how we respond to certain things. Now, whether they're trying to get us to, to evoke us into some sort of action or something, that's beside the point. We're sanctified, we're taken out of the world, and we're put into a, we're put into a, a, a separate category, separated from the, the filth of the world is the, is the sanctified definition, living a sanctified life. And so in verse 9, so he talks about those who reject purity, that sanctification. Those who reject purity don't reject man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I mean, he talk, he's talking about this, the Holy Spirit that, that dwells in each Christian. Not apart from the word, there's no miraculous, there's no, you know, the Spirit told me this sort of thing, dwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I, 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 along with many, 
you know, believe that there is a, there is a direct indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, but that indwelling does not give me any additional, you know, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said this, or God spoke to me and said this. It's not that kind of indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the sanctified Christian is a very special, is a very special thing for the Christian. And we can lose that. That can be lost if you're living in a sinful state. And so Paul then changes the subject from his primary example of talking about uh, living in the world and the fornication that's all around these first century century Christians and then moves on to a secondary topic in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love. So that's 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 a switch in the tenor. That's a switch in the discussion. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone write to you. You yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And that was... One of the things that these Christians should scarcely be encouraged to, to do. I mean, this was a very loving church. Paul has talked about that on uh, innumerable occasions in the first three chapters. And it's found, uh, you know, it's found this, this loving one another is found ten times in John's writings, twice in Paul's writings, and once in Peter's writings. And it was a fundamental principle of, that Jesus taught, um, that we are to love one another. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to have to take some sort of a step to come closer to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is the expectation that you're going to understand and appreciate the sacrifice that Christ made, and that's going to cause some sort of movement in your life, in your spirit, that's going to say, well, he did that for me. I'm going to come to him in simple obedience. Right, right, right. He also tells us to sanctify ourselves and set ourselves apart by making our bodies a what? A living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice that you're making. Because of what Christ did, you're to make your life a living sacrifice. You're to put on Christ daily. You're to live as Christ lived the best that you can. Obviously not being able to come up to the hem of the garment in most instances. But you know, we're to try to live as Christ, as Christ lived because of the sacrifice he made. We're to make ourselves, and as Romans, uh, I have it written down somewhere here, uh, that, we're to make ourselves, that uh, we're to make ourselves a living sacrifice. And so that's that sanctification, that's that love that uh, Paul encourages them to have more and more. So, uh, and he goes on to say, you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Well, that was a simple uh, that was a simple statement for him to make because he knew of their love. And indeed, you are doing it toward all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So this was not isolated to just the church at Thessalonica. The church at Macedonia, or all the churches in Macedonia, knew w- full well that the church at Thessalonica was a loving church. And again, to use the corollary or an example for, from our community... You know, there are people out there who were helped during the tornado, here during help that were helped during the destruction in December of last year. They know what a loving congregation we are. They know that we will step up and we will step out for other congregations, just as we did to the to the congregations in eastern Kentucky during the during the flooding that came here uh, just a few months ago. So 
This whole thing about loving more and more, but we urge you, brothers, that you abound even more. So he doesn't have to say anything about the love that they have for one another. It's well known outside of the walls of the congregation there in Thessalonica. But he says, I urge you, brothers, that you abound even more. Also, in addition to the brotherly love piece of this, now he's going to switch tenses again and talk about, also, make it your aim to live quietly. Now, these are some very interesting statements that Paul makes about how a Christian should live their daily life. Um, he, he admonishes them to live quietly. Now, why would he admonish them? Why would he admonish these Christians to live quietly? And what does that mean for us today? What does it mean to live quietly? Are we not supposed to, we're not supposed, just not supposed to say anything to anybody, just kind of live quietly and just kind of become a recluse in our homes and not talk about what's he talking about? Okay, okay, okay. So this business of of living quietly and doing our own business, because if we complete the thought, here are the things he talks about. Make it your aim to live quietly, number one. To mind your own business, okay? Work with your hands, even as we charged you, so that you may walk becomingly among those outside and may need nothing. So let's now go back and talk about this, all right? There's this business about being quiet, quietness. Study to be quiet. Study to do your your business. So what does it mean for the the Christian here to be be quiet? Okay. Okay. So if you read any any of the cultural literature or the cultural norms for the first century— and this is another way that you can go and find, you can find this literature uh, everywhere, reading about what the culture was like in the first century when this was written. So this was written to people who lived in that time. They lived in a very raucous society, almost like our society today. So there were people that would just get in your face. And, you know, they, they would say, you know, well, you know, they were more confrontational in the first century, apparently, toward Christians than, than most people are today. Now, there's confrontations between Christians and non-Christians. But this was apparently, the society at this time was very much influenced, in the, Greek in, the Greek influences in the culture were very, very, were very, was a very loud and boisterous and raucous lifestyle. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, you don't have to participate in this. You know, you don't have to get up and get in front. Of, you don't have to get in somebody's face. You know, that's a sure way if you're trying to, to change someone's mind about Christianity or trying to preach someone to preach to someone about Christianity by the life that you live. That's not the way to do it. Paul's saying. Paul's saying, your aim is to live quietly. Um, some other words that you could say that you could you could live a restrained, a peaceful, a settled existence. You know, you have, you, you have, we have the love of Christ that lives in our hearts. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where a type A personality like myself fits into that world. Because I'm very, I'm very much a type A personality. I'm, I'm a, let's, let's go, let's get this, let's get this done, let's get up and go, let's, let's get the business taken care of that needs to be taken care of. I'm not a settled, I don't think anyone that knows me well enough would say that I'm a very settled or a quiet individual. So, you know, the onus, of, the onus on me is to, this is hard for me to live a quiet lifestyle. Now, I have no trouble minding my own business. I don't have that problem. 
but I do have the I do have the the, the temptation to not live not live this not live quietly as Paul was saying. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. All right. So we live quietly. We mind our own business. Do we do we really need to talk about that? That's pretty that's pretty self-explanatory. <clears throat> you mind your own business. More problems occur in the church because of busybodies than anything else. And I know of churches that have been torn apart by busybodies, by people who are not minding their own business. They're minding everybody's business but theirs. And this is a real temptation in the church today, as, as well as people outside of the church that are trying not to mind their own business and getting you involved or getting you in the middle of it. Um, you know, if they're, if they're contentious, uh, if there are contentions among people, who do we take that to? Take it, take it to the shepherds. Take it to the elders. If you've got a problem, you don't need to go to everybody in your little phone clatch that you're talking to and, you know, spread innuendo and, and, and rumor and everything. You're, you're to mind your own business. And for some people, it's easy to do. Other people, more of a challenge. So 2 Thessalonians 3.11, here where we're talking about this, and also in 1 Timothy uh, 5.13, they talk about the fact that busybodies, these people in the church, um, you know, they're, they're minding everybody's business but theirs. So live quietly. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Well, that seems to be pretty straightforward. What does that mean, though, to work with your hands? Have a job. Personal industry. Paul said something already. He's already said something in, in 1 Thessalonians about the fact that when he came among them, he didn't ask for any money. What was he doing? He was working. Aquila and Priscilla, when he worked with them, they're all tent makers. They shared that in common. And so that's what he's talking about here. Working with your hands, even as we charge, even as we charge you. Mike? There you go. A lot of these things, a lot of these things could be could be solved simply by you just concentrating on your business, working with your hands. Good point. Good point. Uh, work with your hands, even as we charged you. What he said earlier about uh, about working, uh, so that you may walk becomingly among those outside and may need nothing. So, again, he's coming back to this point. You need to live quietly. You need to mind your own business. You need to work with your hands because what the outside world is looking at you. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, there is definitely an attempt by Paul in this group of sentences here. If you put all these together, this is this is a real this is a real Christian directive that's emphasizing self-sufficiency. Right, and that's and that's exactly what this is all about. <clears throat> Well, it's, a, it's also the opposite of what the world wants you world wants you to do. Does the world want you to be self-sufficient? No. I mean, you know, the world wants you, our world at least, wants you to depend on the government. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. Take care of you. We'll take care of you, cradle to grave. And that's not what that's not that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you to work with your hands. The Bible teaches you you're supposed to to live quietly. You're supposed to live a a life of personal responsibility to that to that end. It's a life of personal responsibility. It does not nullify your obligations to care for the truly needy. You know, a hundred years ago, there was no welfare. When someone was in need, they were too old, they were too sick, 
They were to this. They were to that. They could not work. You know, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, what should he not do? He shouldn't eat. That's a clear Bible. That's a clear Bible directive toward personal responsibility. And a hundred years ago, if people were in need, if they were elderly and couldn't take care of themselves, who took care of them? The church took care of them. What happened? That's a rhetorical question. I don't want to get into the politics of that because we could go down that rabbit hole and spend the next six months talking about that. Personal responsibility. It's something, it's something, that, it's something that the world does not teach today. If you're, if you're trying to be responsible for yourself and take care of your family, you know, you're outside of the mainstream. Correct. Correct. Right. So, that was the first bell, and I'm exactly where I want to be. Go ahead. Oh, was that the second bell? Well, I'm blind as well as deaf. But I'm still right where I want to be because next week we're going to talk about the rapture. Okay, we're going to take the rapture apart piece by piece and we're going to show you why it's not biblical. Because this next section that he talks about, and if you read the 13th verse there, there's an old joke that's embedded in that in the 13th verse that no stupid people can go to heaven. He says, I wouldn't have you ignorant, brethren. That's not what it's talking about, but that's an old joke. So anyway, we're going to talk about the rapture next week and for the next, next week and the week after, we're going to talk about the second coming. And we're going to answer all your questions. Except what? When? But we're going to answer all your other questions. All right, thank you very much. Second bell. I